Welcome to Your Brain Matters. This is a podcast designed to help you better understand your brain and the issues that matter for thinking and behaviour by talking with neuropsychologists. Over the series, we will examine various conditions that may impact upon function and the contexts in which neuropsychological assessment or intervention can be of assistance. Just a reminder that if you want to find out more practical information about exactly what neuropsychologists do and where to find them, you are welcome to revisit episode one. I'm your host, Debbie Anderson. I am a clinical neuropsychologist in Brisbane, Australia. I'm pleased to welcome you to this season, which I'm calling the conference season. In Australia, we are gearing up for the College of Clinical Neuropsychologists Conference in November. So I have invited several of the conference speakers to give us a small insight into the topics they will be covering at the conference. This is a great way to become informed about the issues that are on the minds of neuropsychologists. It's designed to help you understand cognitive function in yourself or someone close to you, or if you're planning to refer someone to see a neuropsychologist. So I'm pleased you could join me and I hope you enjoy learning a little bit more information about your brain matters. Today we have a wonderful guest, Associate Professor Warwick Brewer. I've known Warwick for many years and he's well known for his thoughtful approach to difficult problems. So before we begin, just a little background about our guest that hardly does him justice. He commenced his studies in far north Queensland at James Cook University, moving then to Melbourne University for his Masters in Neuropsychology and then a PhD. He went on to complete lots of research and currently holds honorary principal research fellow positions at the University of Melbourne Department of Psychiatry and in the Centre for Youth Mental Health located at Origin Youth Health Research Centre, Parkville. He also pioneered the intensive case management team at the early psychosis team at Origin, along with a youth mental health neuropsychology clinical research program. His work includes over 100 national and international peer-reviewed publications, including a book. His neurodevelopmental research includes autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, OCD, psychosis, substance abuse, violence prevention, head injuries and cognition. And his work has won various awards. He works full-time in private practice and is a consultant neuropsychologist for various statutory bodies, including the Victorian Adult Parole Board and the Victorian Office of Public Prosecutions. So he's well qualified with such a diverse background to provide expert opinions. So today we have Associate Professor Warwick Brewer speaking with us about a really complicated topic, which is navigating 
parenting assessments for neuropsychologists. This is something that I've noticed seems to get more complicated by the day as we're asked really very difficult questions to try and help the agencies and services and the court to understand more about the person that's referred to us. So Warwick, welcome. And I thank you very much for agreeing to, to uh, participate. So Thanks, starting Katie. with this topic, what in your experience leads people to even be asking for a neuropsychology assessment? in this situation? That's a good question. And um, sometimes I feel like I'm wading into a minefield because it's it's a question that leads to um, the involvement of many different professionals. And I need to say up front that um, as neuropsychologists, we need to be quite careful about um, being clear both to child protection agencies and to other clients, for example, as to what um, our capacity for offering an informed opinion might be and also where the limitations are. Um, But I've found over the last 25 years that the main referrers, um, and I'm aware that there's different um, sort of legislative requirements in different states, but in Victoria, Um, The Department of Family, Fairness and Housing um, runs um, child protection and child protection itself is an agency where uh, the more familiar we get with them, they're um, constantly, like many agencies, seeking as much as we possibly can for the minimum dollar and there is, that leads to highly distressed or overloaded at times inexperienced caseworkers with very heavy caseloads. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, that the child protection gets a, a bad rap from many clients from time to time, I've found over the years that the, the overall aim um, is to assist families who are struggling, particularly young parents and children are at risk to assist them in every way possible um, with what resources they might need to maintain some form of adequate care. And um, if there has been court orders in the past that have resulted in um, children being separated for a small period of time or for an extended permanent care order, for example, um, every effort has been made to assist both the parent and the child. But of course, these are are quite stressful situations when the care of children are involved. They're highly emotive. And um, at times, child protection, from my experience, can be viewed as the enemy when um, just accepting the support, if the support warranted, is um, usually the best way to go. So I've been um, sort of receiving requests for um, assessments of all forms over the last 25 years. And usually they're um, from child protection team members, team leaders. Um, more rarely it's, it's from the other side where a defence lawyer um, might ask for an objective assessment after somebody else has done a report for child protection, but usually it's child protection from my experience. 
So <clears throat> for perhaps somebody involved in that system, what sort of red flag, if you like, in the history would would bring about that um, referral? Would it be particular conditions or experiences that that person's had? Um, I'm finding as I get older and crustier that the referrals um, are getting more extreme. There is a, a long history of notifications, multiple notifications for young children um, from various um, different um, sources. Um, there's usually a risk factor from um, crash, um, child care facilities, neighbours, police, um, drug and alcohol workers, hospitals, um, allied health staff. Um, that's before you know, children even get to the attention of school teachers who usually have a good grasp of, of who might be needing um, extra assistance. And, and so the, the red flags that I get in some of the um, referrals include um, multiple notifications over a number of years that may or may not have been upheld. But um, you can't always assume that where there's smoke, there's fire. But um, I also understand that with the scarce resourcing that child protection has to operate under, that their aim is to reduce their caseload as quickly as possible. And like all semi-public health systems, there's a, there's a pyramid and the people at the top of the pyramid with the greatest risk and the greatest need um, receive the funding. And depending on the government of the day, there's a threshold that's cut off and people that fall below that threshold um, uh, uh, don't present sufficient risk to warrant further um, resourcing and investigation. So as soon as they can literally get them off the books as quickly as possible, then that's the, that's the aim. But the people who do keep um, getting referred and do keep coming to the attention of child protection, the risk factors are um, intergenerational um, involvement of child protection. Um, usually when the mother in question herself has been um, subject to child protection services as a child, the usual risk histories of um, significantly compromised attachments right from early age, um, multiple placements in foster placements, state residences, um, exposure repeatedly to physical and sexual abuse, um, people who've had to self-medicate or cope while they're itinerant and with no safe place to go out on the streets, um, with all sorts of different illicit substances, and unfortunately, as we know, people start focusing on, you know, a young adolescent, a young adult mother's um, um, substance abuse as the problem. But for me, um, attempting to sort of unpack how somebody's got into that situation, then the substance abuse is a secondary issue, not a primary issue. It's, you, you, you want to assist people as to why they need the substances in the first place. And from the, my experience with the clients that I see, there's always very good reason. Yes. It, it's one of those, um, uh, those, well, as you've clearly pointed out, it's always a complex situation. And 
I know myself, I have a lot of feelings when I get referred these types of cases. I don't want to be aiding and abetting something happening to someone that they don't deserve, for example. So uh, it make, it's often an uncomfortable referral to receive, I think, is what I'm saying yeah. for a lot of clinicians because they're yeah. not sure how that information is going to be used. Yes, and it's not for the faint-hearted, I agree. And also we do need um, emotional objectivity and... As a matter of course, I would complete the assessment and then I sort of draw up the, the guts of the report of the, the basic findings, but then I would sit on it for a week and just let the feelings um, crystallise so that you can go back and have a more objective um, presentation of your overall opinion. But one sort of very practical um question I ask myself is that could I ask myself when an eight-year-old child who's been out in the streets you know unsupervised for many weeks if not months they're with older gang members they're getting exposed to drugs and sexualized behavior they're already attracting the attention of police um, their parents are significantly compromised in their capacity to care for themselves um, not just from a neuropsych perspective, just from a face value perspective, that's very limited resources. And I imagine myself asking that child who's grown up in another 20 years and, and access their child protection records under freedom of information, um, could I look that person in the eye and say that I did the best thing for them at the time? Wow, that's very sage advice. Thank you. I guess for me, my in my experience, the the types of referrals end up of parents end up falling into two camps: so intellectual disability and brain injury. Do, is that the sort of groups you're encountering? Well, they're one of the key risk factors. But from my perspective, we know that there's people with intellectual disability that. Um, are quite functional in their capacity to care for themselves and go about their activities of daily living. I have many young clients referred to me with a formal intellectual disability, but they're running six or seven sort of mobile phones and quite adept at managing their drug deals, for example. Um, that requires quite a bit of executive or higher level function. Um, and so on paper, we can never really um, take at face value the fact that somebody's had a head injury or an intellectual disability as a given that that's going to be a problem. There's people with intellectual disabilities and or head injuries, um, I really need to stress this point, that remain quite functional in particularly in their capacity to care for children. And we should never um, take at face value those past diagnostic labels. They can do a lot of damage to people's reputations, a lot of disservice, Sometimes those labels have been um, crystallised from assessments when the young person has been in a highly distressed state in their life and many reports um, don't reflect the distracting impact of emotional distress on cognition at that time. Mm. And the young person might come up on paper with um, an intellectual disability, but um, when their anxiety is addressed and the other um, distracting factors in their life have been assessed and treated adequately, 
then you inevitably find in many cases that um, past findings of intellectual disability, for example, miraculously disappear. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I think also what I, I'm hearing is an important reminder that the diagnosis doesn't necessarily tell us about the capacity. No, but it, it is doesn't. important. Yeah, but I guess it's it's from an organisational point of view, they they need somewhere to start. So getting some kind of clarity on a diagnosis is potentially helpful. Yes. Do you think the way that these cases are referred or the types of things that are being asked about has changed over time? Yes, definitely. Um, back... <laughs> I was nearly going to say when I was a boy over 25 <laughs> years ago, the, the types of referral questions from child protection agencies were quite informed. So the limitations of a neuropsychology assessment on giving an opinion about parenting capacity was quite well known. And we understand as neuropsychologists that our tests are only an indirect um, assessment of somebody's ability and we would, of course, defer to the more informed um, assessments from in-house, usually for a week and 10 days, young parents um, being assessed and monitored 24-7 um, for um, their young children to look at issues of attunement and responsivity and capacity to, to afford basic care to a child or good enough care. But um, over the years, our... Our questions have, have grown from you know, how might this person's cognitive strengths and weaknesses um, help us understand how that person might best respond to a raft of inputs that child protection might put in place. What's their learning? Do they learn um, you know, more efficiently if they're provided with visual information, for example? What's the delivery of the uh, material? How many concepts can you including one one sort of five minute instruction um do you do you keep it very concrete etc but um of course with um agencies that are subject to public funding that the there is a pressure to cut corners and so literally there's not that much funding to get multiple assessments or time particularly if there's court cases pending and so um, I would repeatedly put in my reports a caveat that this is a clinical referral for just looking at cognitive strengths and weaknesses and that my findings aren't geared to inform a court where it'd be quite a different style report. And usually those court reports ideally should be auspiced by a legal team asking specific legal questions that may or may not appropriately be addressed by a neuropsychologist. So there's a, there's tend, tends to be an overlap. And more recently, um, we do get, rather than just what's this person's strengths and weaknesses in their attention, their memory, their higher level organization, for example, um, what is this parent's, um, this parent's capacity to parent? And traditionally, that's not quite an appropriate question for neuropsychologists to address. Nevertheless, we are trained as psychologists first before we are neuropsychologists. And we um, 
if there is going to be no other formal assessment, then we need to be quite circumspect, but also um, able to give the court an, a, an informed opinion that falls within our area of expertise. And clearly, um, as neuropsychologists, we are less well-trained in the typical domain that for clinical psychologists or um, paediatric or child psychiatrists, for example, um, in attachment theory. Um, what type of attachment, for example? So, you know, young children learn um, in their relationship with their primary caregivers to have a an adult that is responsive to their needs in an organised and consistent manner. And many of our clients don't have that luxury. They don't know if they're going to get hit, ignored, if there's going to be an overreactive response to a simple need like you know, needing a nappy changed or food in their mouth at a certain time or having their clothes washed. Um, and children learn the basis of attachment. They learn it like a template and internalise those, those experiences. And that becomes crucial in, during adolescence from the time of puberty when we face that rather daunting task of putting words around our own feelings or navigating the hurdle of self-consciousness. And for most of us, we do the Macaulay Culkin experience in Home Alone when he first put shaving cream on his face, that it's a, it's a rather confronting or at times shocking experience to try and put very powerful and it's at times intimidating emotions into words. And many young people get through um, adolescence into early adulthood and still uh, don't have a very good relationship with their emotions. And in fact, when you see people in therapy, you find there's often an overlap um, of their expectation um, about their emotions and particularly anxiety and not trusting our feelings, not trusting how they're going to show themselves. It becomes quite difficult and we see an echo um, repeated from their experience in early childhood. So what I'm saying or suggesting is that our experience in early childhood of the what it takes to be attached to somebody, to a, a key safe attachment figure, usually a parent, that nature and style of attachment becomes internalised and often overlaps with the way that we embark on having a relationship with our own feelings. And the quality and nature of that then becomes the foundation for how we embark on relationships in adult life. And usually when you um, do a, a more detailed history, it's quite striking that we see the current problems between an adult parent and their child mirroring the very early style of attachment that that same adult has experienced when they indeed were a child. And as neuropsychologists, um, that requires um, additional training, I believe, but we shouldn't underestimate our knowledge of the neural underpinnings of those attachment dynamics. And our brain is beautifully wired to get a very, um, well, it's, it's, it's simple at one level, but it's beautiful in the way that it appears complicated when we first sort of get our heads around this. But you think of a young mother and child at um, birth 
and our instinct is to look in the face of the mother and vice versa. And there's mirror neurons in the right frontal lobes of both the mother and the infant that when we look in the face of the other, they fire in synchronicity with each other. And the amazing thing is that if the mother and child look away, the degree to which they look away is proportional to the degree of which that synchronous um, neural activity between the mother and the child starts to become dissonant and hence both become start to increase in their sense of anxiety. And that anxiety is simply assuaged or minimised as the mother and child turn back to face each other. And that's a crucial fundamental foundation for survival because as a dependent infant, we need a responsive, attuned mirror that the infant experiences what it will later find out and discover when it gets developed its language. He or she um, understands that he's got a pain in his stomach and she's, that pain is, is labeled hunger. And the mother responds with feeding. And the infant internalizes that feeling and the assuaging or the, the feeding, the, the reduction of that distress or anxiety with the feeding behavior. And sooner or later, that infant grows up into a big strapping um, adult. And hopefully they're not still at 20 experiencing the hungry feeling and still expecting mum or dad to come and feed them. They um, have internalised that response and learned to associate it with a self-initiating feeding behaviour. And that has very delicate neural underpinnings. And when we understand it, it's brilliant. And when it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. <laughs> and that's in my experience um, with therapy patients is one of the key triggers for the buildup of anxiety, which is essentially the unmet need. It's like a hunger that is never responded to. And unfortunately, we fall into the socialised trap of responding to anxiety, like um, almost like when your child is hungry, instead of feeding them, we go and tell them to um, go and get some therapy to deal with their hungry expression syndrome or go and get some medication to manage it. <laughs> it's not that I'm against medication, but we literally need to go and feed the need. And when we don't get it right or when infants and young children express a lot of needs and there's a disorganised, chaotic or unreliable response to their needs, they don't get a chance to internalise those key foundational um, associations that are fundamental for survival and for attachment in an ongoing relationship. Lovely. That, that, that is such a beautiful explanation. I, I'm sitting here thinking about, though, that unfortunately I, I feel like sometimes the people that come to us for assessment don't have the ability to have that insight as well about their role as a parent in that relationship um, <clears throat> by virtue of their condition that we're assessing yes. them for that, that makes that. And I think that's what makes it a difficult and uncomfortable assessment that we, we can see those things are happening, but how do we help them to understand that? Is it's different. a very good question. And it puts us in a very difficult position because I find that a well-structured assessment um, usually 
results in the um, usually it's a mother, but not always um, parent more generally um, feeling safe enough to start to put together a logical narrative of their cumulative anxiety over the years and how it's played out and indeed some of the functional or generally dysfunctional ways that they've attempted to manage their accumulation of anxiety, usually with um, psychological defences, <laughs> post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, to help detach is one of the, the key defences um, when things get too, too extreme or also um, with obviously drugs and alcohol. Um, if not um, licit medications. So generally the, the person um, under assessment that if they start to talk about early childhood traumas or experiences, it's, it's not ethical for me doing a one-off assessment to encourage that because the very act of telling somebody for the first time um, and feeling safe to entrust that information to somebody, to a stranger in this case, um, it's quite attaching. It's mm. therapeutic. And that person will never forget that experience usually. And so there's a very fine balance between um, being the type of person in an assessment that is safe enough to um, have some of that information articulated, but to not um, let it then be um, become part of a long-going, uh, an ongoing organised narrative, um, I would usually um, get permission from the, from the parent to um, refer them to a clinical psychologist and would also recommend that a copy of my report goes to the clinical psychologist, which is not always a given from government agencies, and that um, that then affords the clinical psychologist over the longer term to um, essentially benefit from the um, critical mass of empathy of somebody entrusting those distressing parts of their um, early history to the psychologist. And that forms a crucial foundation for attachment with the psychologist. Um, I also end up as a result making quite strong recommendations in my reports that um, young mothers um, and, and, a, and young parents um, more generally that if there's not, they're not going to be afforded the resources of having a long-term trained professional in their life, then please do not expect a person to go around the traps um, telling their story over and over again to different childcare workers, to different agency workers who are only there in the short term. People who've been through child welfare, state resident, residential agencies, they know the system backwards. They've been um, overly pathologized and, and hurt repeatedly by being expected to entrust um, themselves and their history to a litany of a range of different individuals over the years, that just reflects disparate or multiple attachments, which is contrary to the way our brain is designed. Our brain is designed to reinforce one or two crucial attachments as the foundation. And if that doesn't occur, 
it's um it tries to keep up but it's always struggling for many years afterwards to keep up with the different attachments that start and then stop and then start again and our brains learn and they don't quite attach so quickly next time and it becomes very difficult over the years to gain that crucial trust absolutely and and it's i i think probably i'm thinking in a very practical way that uh one of the things about a neuropsychology assessment is that apart from it's a curious, caring person that they're talking to, it's for a lot longer the because of by virtue that the assessment takes a little while. It gives people the opportunity to actually let down some of those barriers. And I think it potentially does create the environment for those sorts of things to come out in a way that perhaps many of their other encounters with the system have not allowed. Yes. And indeed, um, it's also quite rewarding when you get a referral with somebody who's been through the system multiple times. They're, go they're not going to engage. If they do, it will only be for 30 minutes. Mm. And... More often than not, um, I get many distressed young people who've come through the Department of Justice or child welfare agencies, um, state residential care services, for example, um, that have been through multiple shorter assessments in the past. And more often than not, when they do start to um, respond to a highly structured neuropsych assessment, which is containing... Mm -hmm. um, the time passes a lot quicker than what they imagine. So their even their own intentions of only lasting for 30 minutes can turn into two hours and they haven't come up for a breath, a bit like me at the moment. But um, that's, that's a common story and I believe is a reflection of a well-structured um, and organised neuropsych assessment. Gosh, Warwick, I've really enjoyed listening to, to all of this. And I wonder if we can just summarise um, for our listeners how we can help referrers to understand what we do. Can we maybe just um, say, you know, what kinds of cases are best referred to us in these circumstances and how, what sort of questions maybe we can answer? Well, the simplest questions to answer as, um, as a one-off assessment is what is this person's strengths and weaknesses in their attention, their visual and verbal memory, their learning capacity, their higher level organisational ability, the way that they learn to think about the words that they articulate to organise them to get across an idea in the simplest way and the most efficient way possible not like myself at the moment at times, and um, essentially what it would take to maximise their responding to the resources that a child protection agency might offer them. But then questions become more complicated because we know that our brains just aren't a cognitive processing machine. They're also sitting at the top of a highly powerful emotional system. And that emotional system, if we don't have a good relationship with it, can um, become highly distracting. It takes a lot of resources to detach from or switch off from a high level of distracting, impacting emotion. 
And the emotion is there essentially, as I was um, reflecting before, as a, as a, it's like an accrual of repeated unmet need over the years. And there's patterns when we investigate it. And so as, as neuropsychologists, uh, we can start to say something about the extent of the distracting impact of emotion. And for example, a simple, a simple um, example is over the course of a two or three hour neuropsych assessment, a person is pretty, pretty anxious usually at the start. Um, imagine what it's like coming to face one of us for two <laughs> or three hours. It's daunting at the best of times. But um, as they relax and as the, as the structure is explained to them and they're given as much control as possible over what's going to happen, then that takes some of the edge off anxiety. And indeed, you would see um, a reduction in some of the typical signs that um, people show when they're more anxious. So reduced attention um, is a clear sign of, of somebody who's more anxious, not always because of anxiety, but we need to account for that. Um, somebody who talks um, repeatedly and fast and loud and, and um, what we would call pressure of speech can often be driven by anxiety. Word finding difficulties in people who've got minor or you know, medium brain injuries, for example, the little subtle signs of disorganisation in the expression of words, of sentences, of overall ideas, that we see a change in the manifestation of some of those vulnerabilities over the course of an assessment um, as anxiety fluctuates. Well, that's just been absolutely wonderful, Warwick. Thank you for giving us a, a, a lovely overview of neuropsychological assessment uh, for uh, in the context of parenting assessments. Thank you, Debbie. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. On the Your Brain Matters podcast, I hope you heard something interesting and relevant today. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcast provider to keep updated with the latest episodes. I look forward to next time. Bye.